Hi, I'm Sean Brown with McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. Today, we feature a conversation with Hubert Jolie, who served as CEO of Best Buy from 2012 to 2019. During his time as CEO, Hubert led a widely recognized transformation in the face of seemingly impossible odds. That successful transformation, known as Renew Blue, resulted in improved customer satisfaction, market share gains, revenue growth, and improved margins. Hubert also recently authored an article in Harvard Business Review titled, A Time to Lead with Purpose in Humanity. He's also an alum of McKinsey. Hubert joined us as a guest in early April at our 2020 Global Business Leaders Forum, which this year was held online. He participated in a virtual fireside chat with our senior partner, Becca Coggins, and touched on his experience leading the transformation of Best Buy and the importance of leading with purpose. What follows are excerpts from that conversation. Thanks so much, Sean. Hubert has received nearly every accolade that exists for CEOs. But I think what you'll find through our discussion this morning is that he has distinguished Yes, for his sterling record of company performance, but equally by his long-standing vision and commitment towards leading with purpose and humanity. I can't think of a better voice to have joining us during these unprecedented and turbulent times. Thank you, Hubert, for joining us this morning. Thank you so much. As you know, this conference is exploring the themes of transformation and resilience. So we would love to dial into your experience uh, leading Best Buy for many years. So it's summer of 2012. You're the CEO of the Carlson Companies, where you have tripled the size of the company, improved profitability. Let's just say things are going very well. You get a call about certainly an iconic retailer in Best Buy, but one coming off a billion-dollar-plus loss and swirling quite a bit of uncertainty around it. What drew you to the opportunity to lead Best Buy? So I get this call from uh, Jim Citrin, and Jim has been a friend for Many years, and I tell Jim, I don't know anything about retail, and this place is a mess. And so to your question, uh, I did from the outside, before any of the interviews I had with the uh, search committee of the board, an outside in, you know, uh, diagnosis, so I did store visits. I read everything I could about uh, Best Buy and, and the sector, and what I saw is that, of course, this was the all-you-can-eat menu of challenges, for sure. You had strategic challenges with you know, Amazon and some of the tech companies uh, vertically integrating, so really challenging uh, Best Buy. You had operational challenges with the quality of service having gone down significantly. You had leadership challenges with my predecessor having been fired. You had shareholder challenges with the share price going down significantly. And the founder of the company and manager shareholder, Dick Schultz, trying to take the company private. Yeah. Seriously, what I saw is two things from this outside of diagnosis. One is there was actually real strength in the in the company, and that Best Buy in particular played a critical role and could play a critical role for customers because technology is exciting, but for many of us, you know, it's a bit challenging. You need help with it, and so there was a service-oriented role that uh, Best Buy could play, and then there was equally important, a very important role that Best Buy could play with the vendors with the world's foremost tech companies that need a place where to showcase, you know, the fruit of their billions of dollars of R&D investments. And a place without Best Buy would be grim for these vendors. And so that was a very critical – so that was the first thing, real strength. 
Second thing is, out of the company's problems were self-inflicted. The poor quality of service in the stores had nothing to do with Amazon. It was, it was ours. So that gave me the sense that we could do it. And the previous management team, I think we kept talking about headwinds and saying, well, we're performing despite of these headwinds, or we're not performing because of these headwinds. So I told the team when I joined, a bit tongue-in-cheek, I called Tim Cook and Jeff Bezos, and I asked him, how's the wind where you sail? <laughs> and both of them said, oh, we bear the wind. We're having the time of our life. It's just wonderful. So hang up. Wind's not the problem. We must be the problem. And so that gave me the confidence that we had enough to effectuate a turnaround. And what I didn't know retail, I had been a vendor of Best Buy, I'd worked in adjacent industries, and I'd done a few turnarounds before. And so I told the search committee that I wanted the job, and I had a plan, and, and then they gave it to me. There you go. So you then take the job. I think yeah. it's late summer 2012 at this point, early fall. And you've, you've done your diagnosis. You have uh, a lot of turnaround expertise. How did you think about architecting the actual turnaround yeah. of Best Buy? What was important and where do you start? Yeah, so the problem with turnarounds, we, I think we all have this image of cut, cut, cut. And oftentimes, you know, the emphasis is on uh, cutting jobs. A lot of analysts were telling me you're going to need to close a lot of stores. Uh, I have the opposite view. In many ways, in a turnaround, in life in general, in business life, more generally speaking, you start with people. You know, this view, I learned that from a client many years ago, that there's three imperatives in, in a company, a people imperative, you need to have uh, the right people properly engaged and equipped, a business imperative, you need to have customers that are happy, and then a financial imperative, which is really financial performance as an outcome. And so you never start with finance, you start with people. So that's what I did at Best Buy. My first week on the job, I drove to St. Cloud in uh, Minnesota, just a couple of hours north of Minneapolis, and I spent a week in the local store to listen to the frontliners, because uh, they are people who, in a company like Best Buy, certainly have the greatest insight into, and I learned so much, you know, so much more than I would have learned in a windowless conference room looking at spreadsheets. So some things I learned is one of the associates told me, there. The, the search engine on the website is not working. I said, what do you mean? I said, type Cinderella, and I type Cinderella, and what I got was a bunch of Nikon cameras. Not very helpful. <laughs> and nobody in headquarters would have told me this, right? Second, I was able to, uh, you know, observe the interactions between the associates and the customers. And at the time, there was this phenomenon of showrooming, uh, mm-hmm. customers coming to our stores, spending a lot of time with the blue shirt, and then leaving empty-handed because presumably the, the price online was uh, less expensive. Uh, and that's where the idea of matching online prices and having very competitive prices came. There was also the observation about the floor plan. You know, you look at the floor plan, there was a lot of room for CDs and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and movies and, and video games, which, you know, in this digital age didn't make any, any sense. There was also a sense that... Uh, you know, the store general manager told me, look, this is so confusing. I'm being asked to follow 40 KPIs. I, I just can't do this. So what you need to do is simplify, and we focused on two things that everybody at Best Buy still remembers. And I said, we only have two problems, right? Revenue is going down, and the profit is going down. Profit margin is going down. Only two problems. Could have been five problems. How hard can it be to solve two problems? So that was start with people on the front line, 
start with people also at the top of the company. Of course, in the turnaround, you have to redo the management team. So that was one of the first things we, uh, we started with. So start with people was absolutely uh, essential. You branded the turnaround Renew Blue. What was the importance of this branding and what were you trying to signal both internally and externally with that name? So I'm a big believer that uh, a strategy or a plan needs a name. If you don't have a name, you don't have a plan because people cannot relate to it. So uh, during one of the workshops in headquarters at the beginning of September, I said, we need, we need uh, to pick a name. And uh, Renew Blue was the most popular. And Renew Blue was really signaling two things. One is uh, blue, is, of course, is the color of the blue shirts at Best Buy. And so there was a lot of strength in the history, in, in the values. In, you know, Best Buy had been a very successful company for many years. Uh, so this was, uh, this was not becoming somebody else. This, this was us. But yeah. we knew, of course, that the signal of we need to change. And a few years later, the team told me that uh, we were very clear that, uh, about the need for change. They, they told me that I had conveyed the sense that if we didn't change, we would die. And, of course, that tends to focus the, the minds, which was a, a short, uh, very clear invitation for us to, uh, to build on our past, but also change and reinvent the company. You talked about starting with people. How did you go about getting the full body of the company to have energy and excitement and belief in the turnaround at Best Buy? So, um, yeah, in, in a turnaround, in many ways, you know, the, the, the scarce resource, like probably in anything that has to do with leading a company, you have, you have to create energy. In physics, we learned that energy is a finite quantity. In business and organization, it's not. It's something that uh, you, can, uh, you can unleash. There's this fundamental belief that the company is a human organization made of individuals working together in pursuit of a goal. And if you have this as your central idea, it has significant implications on, on how you lead. You know, you're not trying to be the smartest person in the room. You're trying to create an environment in which, you know, you can unleash this, um, this energy. So, and so there was a number of things we did. First, we started by being very transparent. We shared the diagnosis with the entire team. We were also optimistic. Opt you know, people need optimism, including in this time of crisis. We need optimism, realism, but optimism and, and see the possibilities. I think as leaders, how we show up is probably more important than what we say. I think that when people, probably if you were to ask, you know, best by people who were there in 2012, you know, they're going to remember I was high energy and I had this sense of optimism. Do they remember exactly what I said? Probably not. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I conveyed when I joined that uh, I saw the possibilities. I was convinced we could uh, we could do it. And then you nurture the optimism along the way by looking for green shoots and communicating uh, early wins. Then a third one was the co-creation of the plan. In the old days, you create a plan, you cascade it down, and then you know you roll it out, you put incentives in place, and hope that things go well. That was 1960s, 70s, and, and, and 80s. That doesn't work like this anymore. So the co-creation of the plan was really important. And then you're not looking for perfection. Because of the activist founder, we had eight weeks between the time the day I joined and the day when we presented our Renew Blue plan to Wall Street, which was actually great because it forced us to come out mm -hmm. with it. But, you know, you don't have time for... Perfection. In fact, you know, as a philosophical belief, I believe that the quest for perfection is evil. 
that you shouldn't confuse uh, uh, perfection and, and performance. So you don't go for a perfect plan, you set the direction, and then you have what I call the bicycle theory. If you're trying to direct a bicycle at standstill, it's really hard, you fall. If, you, if the bicycle is moving, if it's not moving exactly in the right direction, it doesn't matter, you can course correct, and you're, yeah. you're just uh, aware of this, and there's this idea that the difference between great leaders and good leaders is not the quality of their decisions, but the quantity of their decisions, which would not be true in certain industries that are, that are very capital intensive and long cycle, but in most services, customer-oriented uh, businesses, it's a good approach. And then you focus everything you can, and we'll talk about it more, but on this idea of unleashing human magic. There's the, you know, defining what to do is usually not that difficult. It's mobilizing and doing it that's actually hard. So how do you mobilize the team in relationship with all of the stakeholders, uh, and how do you, you know, create the new mindsets and the new capabilities? That was the essence of the of the strategy. I think transparency and optimism were the, the key things. So we uh, in co-creation of the plan. So you know, we shared the diagnosis. Uh, and it interesting when you're a public company. Sometimes your um, chief legal counsel, a chief legal officer, will tell you, "Well, be careful because you're sharing." Uh, material non-public information, and there is a risk of a leak. I said, well, if I have a risk of a leak, I have, I have the wrong team, which is a much bigger problem. So I'm going to decide to trust people. I'm going to tell them it's non-public material information, but we're going to share the diagnosis. Before going to Wall Street, we shared the plan with all of the officers because I wanted to make sure that I told them, look, I'm going to present the plan. Uh, if I don't have your full backing, I don't want to do it. So is everybody all in? Pretty much around the same time, we had a meeting with all of the store general managers, and uh, you know, we, we there was a lot of transparency and sharing, and then being realistic about the problems, self-inflicted, and, and clear about what we saw as the as the opportunities. And so we spent a lot of time being explicit around what expectations we had of our leaders, and I I called that the principles of purposeful leadership, being clear about your purpose as a leader and understanding the purpose of people around you and, and, and connecting that to the purpose of the company, being clear about who you serve. You know, you're not here to serve yourself, but to serve people around you. Being clear about your role, which is not to be the smartest person, but to create an environment in which others can uh, flourish. Of course, integrity and values, being a value-driven leader and being an authentic leader. And we spent a lot of time on authenticity and vulnerability throughout these years. I was visiting a store in the Boston market. I, I walk into the store and I speak with the, the general manager and he explains to me what he's doing to drive performance and engagement in the store. And one of the things they were doing in the entire Boston market actually, ask every one of the associates, what is your dream as an individual? Put it down in the break room on a, a dream board and then commit to helping the associate achieve their dream and have a conversation around how it connects with the purpose of, of Best Buy, it's one employee at the time. The last thing I would say, Becca, in terms of, is really to, you know, mobilizing the organization. So you're familiar with the BRT uh, statement on corporate purpose and stakeholder capitalism. And you could say, this is something you do when everything is going well, right? No, this is something you do all the time. In fact, 
uh, Renew Blue presentation, people can look it up uh, uh, in 2012 to the investors at five pillars. It was the customers, the employees, the vendors, and the communities in which we operate, uh, and then the shareholders, treating shareholders as a very important stakeholder, but one of five. That creates meaning for the organization, and that's one way, even in the dark days, to, to have people feel that they're part of something real that's meaningful and that they're ready to commit to. I love it. You took some quite bold decisions uh, during the early years, especially of Renew Blue, from yes. getting out of international businesses, restructuring um, the cost structure quite significantly. How did you make those decisions, and were there any that were harder than others? International was actually very easy. I don't believe that retail is a global business. It's really a local business. There's some exceptions, but in a business like ours, there's no benefit of being global. And the previous team had expanded in Europe and in China, and uh, you know we quickly reviewed that, and uh, we decided to uh, to exit. I mean, we took the time to study and do it properly, yeah. but uh, this was not very difficult. The performance improvement around cost. So let me pause here. In a turnaround, you don't start with cutting heads. It's people last. The first lever you go after is increased revenue. It's, it's amazing what revenue can do. So as part of a turnaround plan, we put a lot of emphasis on our online business, you know, which now, uh, in fact, before the crisis, was about 20% of our business. With the coronavirus uh, crisis, it's actually close to 100% of our business mm-hmm. because the stores are actually closed. We can do curbside pickup, um, uh, but that's, that's really an online business. We, we did the price match to take price uh, of the table. We invested in the customer experience in the, in the store. So a lot of emphasis on reigniting the growth engines because uh, it makes such a big difference. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm a big believer that it's never either or, it's and, so it's not just revenue. You do have to go after cost. But the second thing you do, the number one is revenue, the second thing you do is go after non-salary expenses, which at most companies is 70, sometimes 80% of the cost structure, and that would be true at Best Buy. And so one example of this, so we sell a lot of TVs. Now, the big TVs now, they're very thin. They're, they're large, they're very thin, so they're very fragile. And so if we sell, and make up the number, let's say $15 billion worth of TVs every year, we'll break a lot of them. Uh, and, and so the cost of breaking these TVs, let's say it's about $200 million. And so if you can uh, look at the entire value chain and reduce the damages, working with the vendors on you know, the design of the TVs, on the design of the packaging, how we store the TVs, how we move them, the advice we give to customers when they install it. You know, we told the market very early on, this was a $400 million opportunity uh, for us. And any cost that you can take out that's not related to people, but that's uh, related to non-salary expenses is, is a godsend. And it's a, it's a gift that by now we've taken $2 billion of cost out of Best Buy. And probably three quarters is non-salary expenses. The third thing you look at is uh, the optimization of, of compensation and benefits. Now, we've implemented a whole host of new benefits for our uh, employees over time, including uh, backup childcare and, and mental health support and so forth. But there's some cost of, of, of the benefits that you can go after. In particular, healthcare is one of them, and by having wellness program and so forth, you can actually optimize things. And if one plus two plus three is not sufficient, 
Then you go, you go after headcount. And we did reduce headcount. We delayed the organization. We de-emphasized a number of areas. We looked for, you know, efficiencies. But to your question, if you do this as a last resort, you actually uh, send a signal that uh, human resources are not a resource. They are the source. They are the engine of the company. And then when you do reduce headcount, there's different ways to do this. So a couple of years ago, we decided to close Best Buy Mobile standalone stores that were mall-based. It had made sense maybe 10 years ago. didn't make sense anymore for a whole variety of reasons. So we decided to close them. But the employees in these stores, uh, instead of letting them go, we said, no, we want to keep you. And we worked with each of them to offer them opportunities within the company. So these were people with five years, 10 years of, uh, of experience that's very precious. It's not, a, it's not an asset that's on the balance sheet, still a real asset. And so there's ways to, uh, to go after that. Yeah, it's such an interesting thread throughout the phases. Tell us a bit about the vendor program. When we decided that our prices had to be competitive, we have to take price of the table. One reaction I got from the, the investors was, uh, on the media was, yeah, that's nice. You know, you, you were going to die because your prices were too high. Now you're going to die because your costs are too high because, you know, your costs are higher than, uh, you know, Walmart or Amazon by, by design, right, because we are a higher service-oriented organization. And so uh, the, the, that was without counting on this idea of partnering with the world's foremost tech companies to help them commercialize the fruit of their billions of dollars of R&D investment. And back in 2012, we already had a small Apple store within our store, but Samsung, there was nothing meaningful. And so the first deal we did was with Samsung. J.K. Shin at the time was the CEO of Samsung Electronics, and he visited us in December of 2012, so these were the dark days. But he had, he had heard from the Renew Blue presentation that it was open to these uh, strategic partnerships. And over dinner, we did a handshake deal where, in a matter of months, uh, Samsung would have 1,000 Samsung stores within the Best Buy stores where they could showcase their wonderful phones and tablets and, and, and other products with highly trained labor just across the aisle from the Apple store within our store. Uh, and so it was good for the customer because they you know, could see and compare it was good for Samsung because their alternative was to, you know, how long would it have taken them to build 1,000 stores within the U.S.? And it was good for us. So we did it with Samsung, then we did it with Microsoft. Uh, we expanded our partnership with Apple, with Sony, LG. Um, we also did it with, uh, the, the, uh, you know, Google. And we did it with Amazon because Amazon was this company that was supposed to kill us back in 2012. And... Certain retailers had refused, were refusing to sell Amazon's uh, hardware products, like uh, you know the Kindle tablets, a reader, and then uh, some of their uh, subsequent products. And we had always sold, you know, the Amazon products in our stores because we're customer driven. So, you know, if it's a good product that can be interesting and do good things for customers, we should sell it. And so, uh, over time, we actually did a, an Amazon store within our store. So there's an Amazon table yep. next to the Google table that showcases everything you can do with the Echo products and the Alexa products. And, and it's, a, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a very vibrant part of the, the stores. And then we did something else. We did a partnership with them where Amazon gave Best Buy the exclusive rights to the Fire TV platform to be embedded in smart TVs. 
And the only place in the U.S. and in our Canada where it would be sold would be at Best Buy or by Best Buy on uh, Amazon. I think it was in April 2018, we did a, an announcement with Jeff Bezos in, in one of our stores in Bellevue, Washington. And, uh, you know, the, the, there was some media there. And, and Jeff said, you know, yes, it, TV is a considerate purchase. You have to see it to buy it. And the best place in the world where to see it is actually Best Buy. So that's why we did this partnership. And what was interesting in this was this is too many, you know, I feel that there's too much focus on zero-sum games. Yeah. So sometimes when companies develop a strategy, they say, I want to be number one. Or I want to be the best. And, of course, there's only room for one number one. And it's a, it's a zero-sum game uh, approach. And then what do you do when you're number one, right? Where do you go? You don't know. So it's much better, and we'll talk about it, to be inspired by your purpose. In our case, it's to enrich lives through technology. And then see how you can partner with others uh, in pursuit of that uh, of that goal. And so uh, we love this idea. Of it's, it's about thinking about possibilities. There's a great book by Ben Zander, the conductor of the Boston Philharmonic, yes. Uh, the art of possibilities. Think, think about what's possible and then drive uh, to that. So the vendor partnerships, as you can see, have, uh, you know, it's a, been a very exciting uh, part of our, of our story. I think it was late 2017, you unveiled the beginning of a new chapter of the transformation yes. of Best Buy, yeah. building the new glue. Yes. Can you help us understand what was different about this phase and what were you signaling with the shift from a new glue to new glue? Yes, so uh, I think it was in 2016 that one of our board members uh, said, you need to declare the turnaround officially over and enter into a new chapter. Because in, in a turnaround, we had a focus on growth, but you try to avoid taking risk. It's a, it's a, it's a more risk-adverse strategy, and then you need to unleash more optimism. So the purpose of this next chapter is about growing, uh, the business. It's about becoming the best version of Best Buy we can be. And so we did a lot of uh, customer research, market segmentation, and so forth, but we focus on our purpose. And there's a lot of talk now about uh, companies' purposes, so uh, I, I want to dig into what it means to make it a reality. So uh, we declared our purpose was to, as I said, to enrich lives through technology. So we're not in the business of selling TVs or computers, even though we will happily sell one to you if you want one. <laughs> uh, and we're not actually a retailer. We're in a human business of enrich enriching lives with technology by addressing key human needs, whether it's entertainment, health, uh, productivity, communication, uh, and so forth. And this has the benefit of vastly expanding what we can do for customers. So the key then is to make it a reality uh, and to, to make uh, this purpose the bedrock or the keystone of the, of the strategy. So let me make it come to life with maybe a couple of three examples. One is our entry into the healthcare space. Uh, so we've always sold, you know, some of the wellness-related products. You can find them in our stores, you know, smartwatches, uh, Fitbit, and whatnot. But around the world, there's a, a trend around the aging population, right? And we all have, hopefully, uh, parents, aging parents, and there's a big uh, movement towards helping aging seniors stay in their home longer because it's better for them, it's better for their loved ones. It's also better from a healthcare cost standpoint. Plus, in the context of this crisis, who wants to go to a hospital? <laughs> and so 
We did this through an acquis- a series of acquisitions, but we now have a business that's focused on that. So what we do, one of the things we do in that business is we put sensors into the home of a senior, maybe under the bed, in the bathroom, in the, in the kitchen, under the seat. And then with artificial intelligence, we monitor their activities of daily living. Are they drinking? Are they sleeping well? Uh, and so forth. And then we have a care center, actually there are three care centers, that uh, are alerted by the artificial intelligence. And if there's something weird happening, can communicate with the senior and mobilize the appropriate services. And so that service is actually not sold in our stores. It's sold through insurance companies. And it's a, it's a high growth opportunity for us. Uh, and we would never have thought about it if we had just looked at the business in a traditional way. Similarly, and that's something that people can use even as our stores are closed, is the in-home advisor program. As I said, technology is quite exciting, but it can be challenging to, you know, choose what, you know, if you're redoing your family room or your kitchen, you need somebody to help you with that. So before the crisis, we would have these highly trained, you know, almost they're the CTO for your home, right? Come to your home, listen to what you're trying to do, and then make it happen. Uh, now they can do this virtually. Uh, and so it's a new channel for us, a new way to, to, to build this relationship and pursue uh, our, our purpose. There's a, a few other examples, but I want to be uh, respectful of, uh, of time. Hubert, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't take advantage of hearing your perspectives on how to lead with purpose and humanity in the midst of this COVID crisis, both as you're experiencing as a board chair, a board member, a citizen. Yeah, because this is uh, so unprecedented, right? Uh, I checked it was not in the new CEO training program I went to a few years ago. Uh, And the challenge we all have to face is just extraordinary. And I I greatly admire how my successor at Best Buy, Corey Barry, and the team are leading through this in a a very impressive fashion. And on the theme of resilience, you know, I think the reason why they're able to lead through the crisis with resilience is because of the of this purposeful leadership and, yeah. and these capabilities and how the the whole transformation has been led in a widespread you know decentralized fashion by unleashing the the human magic throughout the uh the the, the company i think the some of the lessons for me from this crisis i think have to do in particular with how how do we define performance I love this quote from Bob Chapman that's uh, put at the top of the article in HBR, which is, I'll read it, which is, we measure success by the way we touch the lives of people. So this is a time when our performance as leaders is not going to be defined by our share price or by whether we hit guidance, right? It's all going to be, uh, you know, measured by how we, we uh, treat the employees, you know, how we take care of them, their uh, safety, their well-being, how we deal with customers, how we deal with uh, with uh, with communities, and so this is, you know, uh, a time where, you know, back in 1940, I think in a speech to the House of Commons, I think on June 18, Churchill talked about this will be their finest hour. This is the opportunity to be our finest hour as leader, but it it requires that we ask ourselves a few questions. Right, one is. Are we taking the time first to take care of ourselves? And either through meditation or any other means, hitting the pause button 
and being clear about how we want to lead in this time of crisis. Then uh, second question is what actions are we taking and what's driving them? Uh, it can be tempting to take advantage of the situation on the part of some companies. Now, how do we prioritize you know, employees uh, and customers? Many of us, including Best Buy, we serve a, uh, an essential purpose because all of us are working from home, right? So we need all these computers, these uh, yeah. networking equipment, maybe the additional fridge or we're learning from home. So, uh, of course, we're driven to continue to serve that, and we can through online or uh, contactless uh, curbside pickup. But we've decided to close the stores. Right, because we felt for the purpose of ending this crisis, protecting the employees, protecting the customers, it was the right thing to do. And so then define, you know, how you're going to measure your own performance and how do you want your leadership to be remembered uh, from, uh, from that time. I must say, Becca, I am completely inspired by so many great examples uh, of uh, leaders and companies doing an amazing job of taking care of their employees, yeah. thinking through how, you know, not laying them off, but maybe it's furlough in Europe, they have the, the, the measures in place where the, the employees actually stay on the payroll, it's been subsidized by the government. These are extraordinary times, but these are the people who are going to help us uh, yeah. uh, moving, uh, moving forward. People taking care of, 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 of the communities, um, you know, Medtronic has you know, uh, publish the design of one of their ventilators for people to replicate. Uh, Johnson & Johnson, they've decided to start manufacturing the vaccines before they're tested so that when they're tested as successful, then we have the hundreds of millions of dollars. So this is a time for extraordinary leadership. At this point in the discussion, Hubert took questions from our participants attending our online Global Business Leaders Forum. His first question was related to how he effectively engaged the board during the transformation. Great board is an amazing asset for a very good uh, management team. So, uh, it, it can be tempted part of a management team to uh, keep the board at arm's length and not have them get involved and so forth. I believe a good board can give a strong management team superhuman powers. And so uh, my approach has been to be completely transparent with the board uh, around, you know, the situation and where we were going. Uh, ask them for advice. Now, there's a big difference between advice and direction. So the board always was very clear that, you know, there's a management team. They're there to support, sometimes challenge, but support the management team. And then we spend a lot of time to rebuild the board. I wanted the best possible board uh, that, we, uh, that we could get so that we could uh, – you know, accelerate the, the, the transformation. So I think for a CEO or management team, it's a big priority. And I think that, the, and by the way, it's 50, 50 uh, percent uh, women and men. Uh, we have um, uh, about a quarter of African-American directors. Diversity and inclusion in creating a sense of belonging for everybody at the company, that's the secret sauce, right? Because if people feel they belong, then they can be the best version of themselves. We live in a crazy world even before the crisis where only 30% of employees across the world are engaged at their company. Imagine a world where 80% of employees would be engaged and the potential performance that this, uh, this unleashed. One of the things I'm passionate about is I think that this crisis will accelerate the movement towards a, the necessary refoundation of business and capitalism around purpose and, and humanity. Hubert was then asked by our attendees how he led the transformation at Best Buy with a long-term orientation 
and how he kept people focused on the long term, especially with the pressure that Wall Street constantly applies to show near-term results. So I would say two things, again, around the question of is it short-term or long-term, it's both. You have to focus on both. On the question, is Wall Street an excuse to uh, justify a focus on short-term performance? No. Uh, in fact, a lot of investors on the street uh, want you to be long, I mean, short-term and long-term performance focused. Larry Fink, you know, the CEO of BlackRock, is well known for having encouraged all of us CEOs to focus on purpose and long-term strategy. So, uh, you know, there's no, uh, no need for any excuse. You just need to do it, and, it's, and you focus on the short-term and the long-term. Initially, in the turnaround, it was really important for us to establish our credibility to show short-term progress. So we had what we call a say-do ratio, the ratio between what we said we were going to do and what we actually did. And even though in some cases the results were not big, but we were doing it. So an example was when we started with Ship From Store, which was a big transformation initiative. Initially, it was in 50 stores. But, uh, and then we rolled it out to 250 stores and then 1,000 stores. But keeping the investors on the journey, sharing with them what we saw as opportunities, and keeping the, dr- the dream alive by you know, keeping both talking about it, but importantly, doing things. And then as you lead, you know, being driven by a compass around doing the right thing. I found that you have to ignore this idea that uh, you, you know, you're, you're a prisoner of short-term performance. You're not. You're, 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 if you're a prisoner, it's on your own mind. The next question that Hubert received from the group was a follow-up to the point that he'd made earlier about diversity. He was asked to talk specifically about how he got his organization excited about building diversity across Best Buy. It's a journey. To, so there's several levels of diversity uh, and inclusion and belonging. I think it starts, again, at the individual level by ensuring that everybody feels they belong, that they exist for a blue shirt to feel that people know them, they respect them, people take an interest in them. That is really what matters, you know, irrespective of who they are. And so you start with that. It's the humanity of the organization. And so that's the diversity at the individual level. And then, of course, you have to realize and be honest with yourself with the fact that there's some systemic issues around diversity and inclusion, in particular around gender and around ethnicity in particular, and on an ethnicity in particular around African-American black, you know, colleagues and, 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 and compatriots. And then you have to be deliberate around attacking this. And that's a journey. It's been a, journey, a personal journey for me. I didn't grow up in this country. I grew up in France. So I have not had the same exposure to the unique history of uh, African-American individuals in this country. So... You know, I actually invested time personally. I, I met with uh, Melody Hobson, the famous president of Aero Investment in, uh, in Chicago, who t- taught me a lot of things around, you know, you cannot be who you cannot see, which is why I wanted to change the top. I had, we established a reverse mentoring program. Uh, so I've had this wonderful reverse mentor, Laura Gladney, who's educated me around, I said, focus groups with the, the African-American colleagues. And then we you know, created a broader uh, initiative, again, like everything else. It's a business. You know, diversity and inclusion is like any business matters. If you see it as a politically correct thing to do, as a sideshow, you know, it's not going to work. If you see it as an essential element of your strategy, because in particular, 
you know, if at Best Buy our employee population and leadership does not reflect the country, we're going to fail. You know, if in Chicago, in the parts of Chicago where people speak a lot of Polish, if you don't have any Polish speakers, you're going to fail. So it's a business imperative, and you have to drive it like any other initiative. Finally, Hubert was asked what motivated him to step down from his role as CEO of Best Buy in 2019, rather than continuing his successful tenure, as well as what he's planning next. Thank you. So I did not step down. I passed the baton, uh, which is very different. (laughs) Uh, At some point, I think it was really around Christmas of 2018, I felt that uh, Yes, the time had come for me to effectuate a, uh, a transition. I had been a CEO for 15 years. I felt that at Best Buy we had accomplished, you know, what large, in large part what I wanted to, to accomplish. And uh, I felt that uh, it was time to move to the next chapter. And I had built this great team. I saw how amazing uh, they were. And so here was the scoop. Even when I was CEO of Best Buy, I was not the CEO of Best Buy. I was me. I just had that job, but it was not, the job did not define me. And so I felt it was the right time for all of these uh, reasons. So we triggered with the board, that's where having a great board is so helpful. The process, we had worked on executives development and succession planning, but we ran a, uh, and it's not that, we ran a process, and the board picked uh, Corey Barry, uh, who had been with the company for 20 years, and, and uh, the board decided that uh, she was the most qualified to lead the uh, organization and has been doing a wonderful job, which is why uh, earlier this m- or last month we announced that uh, I would not stand for re-election uh, uh, to the board in June, uh, completing the transition to, uh, to Corey. Now, in this next chapter, my purpose doesn't change. My purpose, my individual purpose is to try to make a positive difference on people around me and use the platform I have to make a positive difference in the world. And so for me, the, the, the thing I'm the most passionate about is this idea that this is a time where we need to accelerate the refoundation of business and capitalism around purpose and, and, and humanity. And so I want to be part of this movement to uh, make this happen. So what am I going to do? I'm writing a book that's coming out uh, next spring. Uh, the provisional title is The Heart of Business. Somebody uh, two days ago, told me maybe it should be called the soul of business. Maybe it's the heart and soul of business. We'll see. Uh, it's it's fun to write this. I'm going to join the faculty at Harvard Business School because I believe that helping shape or you know prepare the next generation of leaders for the challenges uh, of this century and and this next decade is is uh, I think a good way for me to employ my talent. I want to support management team as a as a board member, on a few boards, as a mentor and, and, and coach, and then um, uh, obviously uh, do some uh, some philanthropy. So very excited about uh, doing this, uh, applying my talent to, uh, to these opportunities. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Inside the Strategy Room. If you'd like to listen to other episodes, we encourage you to visit our strategy and corporate finance practice page on McKinsey.com, where you may also find links to our latest insights and sign up for email updates. We also encourage you to follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy and to connect with us on LinkedIn via the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We hope you can join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.